Thank you, Tim. And thanks to Bill Carey <laughs> for this opportunity. What about the current situation? I just added this at the last minute. You probably don't know what a WAP is. That's a working age person. Uh, people too young to be workers, I don't count. Um, it, as part of the potential workforce. But it's pretty close to per capita. As you can see, this is the this is detrended. Um, on average, you go up about 1.8 percent a year quarterly. That's 0.45 percent, and that's been detrended by that amount. By the way, you can see that great boom in the early in the 60s, first half of the 60s. That's the uh, Kennedy technology boom. I, I was hoping to be the tax cut boom, but it wasn't. Uh, when we worked it out using economic theory. It said technology. Um, tax cuts did come in for the, uh, the big, long expansion in the 80s that you can see in this picture. And there was another technology boom in the 90s. Ellen McGratton, who I work with with this unmeasured investment and I have a series of papers, came to the conclusion that that boom was really bigger than it looks in that paper because of well, the national accountants do not measure intangible investment, R&D, advertising, starting new business. And there was a lot of that activity in that period, abnormally large amounts. You always miss a certain percentage, but the amount you're missing there was bigger. Well, this big drop-off is largely tied in with the fourth quarter, at the end is the fourth quarter of uh, 2008. What happened then? Uh, none of the usual candidates, taxes and technology, uh, or some labor market regulation does it. It just seems to be people being fearing what might happen, what policies may be adopted in the future, or not knowing what will happen. Well, even with this drop, the current drop is not huge relative to the other ones. You can see the uh, – well, by the way, the big one started in the fourth quarter of 1978 and went through the uh, fourth quarter of 1982. They normally break that down into two contractions. I don't use the word recession because that's not part of uh, modern economics. Now that Finn and I, Kittlin and I developed a theory of business cycles, they're not cyclical. They're The fluctuations in output and employment, but they're due to the sum of random causes in the language of Slutsky. Um, current depression is just a mini depression so far. Certainly nothing like the Great Depression. Here's the Great Depression. There you're talking 
you know, that drop from plus 10 to minus 30, that's a 40% drop. And we're talking about a 4% recently, um, with, with a big a percent and a half of that occurring in the fourth quarter. Um, nothing compared to the current situation is nothing compared to the 30s. They're minor ripples compared to the 30s, all the post-war. Maybe this one will be different. Is a depression on its way? At this point, we, well, I don't think so, but uh, we don't know. I'm betting on a lost decade of growth at most. Japan had a financial crisis in the 90s and lost a decade of growth. Fumio Hayashi and I wrote a paper about that. And we kept telling them, worry about productivity. Larry Summers kept telling them, stimulate the economy. Build some bridges to nowhere. That didn't work. Uh, when they invited me to the cabinet office, to the research group there, then I knew that they were going to change policy. They didn't invite me to learn. They knew what I was going to say. It was clear that the prime minister wanted a shift in policy. They did, and productivity recovered. They made their banks solvent. But now for the talk. The path to riches. I think the whole world's going to be rich in, two, in 2100. Um, what about the key development fact? Prior to 1700, constant living standards that varied little across countries and over time. There was gradual increase in output, but that was made up by population increase. It's very Malthusian. Birth rates equal death rates, like in any species. Um, there was a transition from stagnant income beginning about 1750 in the United Kingdom to modern economic growth. This is called the Industrial Revolution. With modern economic growth, living standards double every 35 years. Two Here's a picture of what happened. Off to the races. Just imagine another, another factor, not 30, but 1,000 there. I'm not quite 1,000, but 800 <laughs> if it goes through the 21st century, as I predict. When you talk to the technical people, they're awesome. Uh, the new things that they're coming up with. Those that predicted the, the Club of Rome who predicted the end of growth back in 1970 were wrong. They underestimated the creativity of the humans. Well, things have been pretty smooth. Uh, the earlier volatility is overstated a bit. Christine Romer, by the way, had a brilliant dissertation where she measured things in the early period, in the later period, the same way as in the early period. That could be done because all the data available in the later period was available in the earlier period, not, not the other way. And things got a lot more volatile in the later period. So probably it's overstated. But you see that Great Depression. But China has 1.3 billion people. And how many people are there in the world? A little over 6 billion. Um, they're big. 
up to 1950, they were losing ground. It wasn't that they were relative to the leader, relative to the U.S. The U.S. has been the leader since about 1890, after they, when, they, when we overtook the United Kingdom. It wasn't, it wasn't that, it wasn't so much, they were not falling, the U.S. was going up steadily. That's why that curve is doing that stagnation of living standards in China, relative to the U.S., things fell. Then the Chinese Revolution, the, the Communist Revolution and Chairman Mao, uh, well, they stopped losing ground according, these are all Madison numbers, by the way. Uh, he's the expert in this, and it, if you want to look at these numbers yourself, it's easy. Just go to GGDC website, and they're all there. That's Grotingham uh, Growth and Development Center in the ne Netherlands. But look what happened after 78 when there was a change of the regime where they moved towards a decentralized market system. Rapid growth and rapid catch-up. Um, a lot of people always want to talk about convergence, but you can converge down to zero, and that's not good. It's, but it's good to catch up to the leader. Um, it's a more positive tone. Well, this is the U.S. overtakes the U.K. in this period. Now, why did it happen? Well, the U.S. became economically integrated because of the dramatic fall in transportation costs in the 19th century. People couldn't get out to Colorado Springs. It wasn't even a state here, was there, until I think somebody told me to about eight, 1880. <laughs> um, and this school didn't start until about 1874, before the state. Um, but this town really not, didn't explode until the airplane could bring people in cheaply. Transportation is important. And member states, I, this is, had a high degree of economic sovereignty. The Interstate Commerce Clause was interpreted as member states could not interfere with the movement of goods and people between the member states of the uh, Union. Members do not impose tariff and restrict imports from other members. That's part of the economic integration. Members have a considerable degree of economic sovereignty from the collective entity. They set their own tax rates. Uh, Brussels always wants to have a <laughs> form a cooperative endeavor to have higher tax rates in the uh, EU. Uh, well, actually, the, the French, when they voted down the Constitution, I said yay. <laughs> Uh, but some of the bureaucrats did not like it. They wanted to say when the museums in Italy and Spain could be open. Now, property rights of, by the way, I, I can't underestimate property rights of foreign companies protected. This is crucial. I don't know what, what is WP Carey's enterprise called? Is it the WP Carey enterprise? Uh, 
That is a multinational. They have operations around the world. And they pick carefully where they go and study the political situations in these countries. And their betting, batting average has been pretty good in betting on where to go. Um, where there was more on that later. Now, the original EU countries, productivity slightly over half of the U.S. level for 40 years prior to World War II. By the way, the original EU was Italy, France, Germany, and the Benelux. But they went, after they signed the Treaty of Rome, in 35 years they caught up in terms of productivity with the U.S. They didn't catch up, and here's a picture of what happened. Um, Actually, they got a little bit above, ahead of the 100% of the U.S. Uh, some of the people, some countries in Europe joined the EU later than others. Um, here's some late joiners. Austria, Finland, and Sweden, 1995. Switzerland hasn't joined. Well, they're about the same level as the original EU countries. They lost ground. And by the way, since 95, they caught back up. Not Switzerland, but the other ones. I could have shown a similar picture for those that joined, I believe it was 1973, Ireland, Denmark, and uh, the UK. You may ask, why is the EU GDP per capita only about 70% or two-thirds of the U.S. level. They have a bad tax system. Their marginal effective tax rate is 60%. If you work and produce 100 euros worth of output, you get to consume 40 euros. In the U.S., it's not so bad. If you produce $100 of output, you get to consume $60 worth of output. By the way, this tax rate holds for low-wage people, low-income people, as well as high. This 40% is pretty flat in the U.S. This includes sales tax, as well as income tax, and Social Security taxes. Um, by the way, you don't need high tax rates for a welfare state. You just so we start following the footsteps of Australia and Sweden and a number of other countries that have uh, moved more in the directions of mandatory savings and annuitization. The annuitization is in there so you can, cannot live your savings and become a ward of your family or the state. Why did the EU catch up? Well, the original EU countries became economically integrated with the signing of that treaty. The French companies could set up operations in Germany, and conversely, this, there was a transfer of technology. Sometimes just the threat of entry is enough. Suddenly they become um, productive, so as to block entry. And when they become more productive, there's more. Oh, by the way, income is equal to output. That is an accounting identity. Income is a claim against output, and there's always a residual claimant, so it has to be the case. Um, 
By the way, South America is not catching up. Though I'm hoping things will change. Um, Brazil has been doing better recent, until very recently. Um, last time I saw Bill Kerry, he said he was investing there, and so he must have saw something good down there. The president down there really surprised everybody, and they didn't behave like they used to. The central government used to write checks on the uh, central bank. Um, by the way, they had some pretty high inflation. But then the central bank got independent. Independent central banks, I'm a strong believer. That follows from the rules rather than discretion. That is an important institution to maintain price stability. And it's, it's been adopted throughout a large part of the world. And the amount of inflation we see has come way down in the world. Well, why didn't Latin America catch up? It's not economically integrated. Chile's doing pretty well. They do about a third, a lot of trade with Europe, a lot of trade with Japan, and a lot of trade with North America. Uh, they're integrated with these countries. American retailers went down there and set up and dominated the retailing. They had all this savings because of their uh, retirement system. And a rule was that it had to be reinvested in their country, a certain fraction, a big fraction. So they bought out the American companies. And now all the retailing in uh, Chile is Chilean. And they have extra money, so they start becoming multinationals and setting up operations in other countries. What about the Asian facts? Some have caught up. Japan's pretty rich, about 80%. South Korea. 60, Taiwan about 60, Hong Kong and Singapore near 100%. Others have narrowed the gap, Malaysia, Thailand, and China. One of the things I'm going to argue is that uh, trade in industrial products is key. And it's got to go two ways. Maybe it's a multinational producing in some country and, and importing, importing the goods produced there and selling the goods in their country. Um, But they've got to become integrated. It's strategic. If you have, if your multinationals have operations abroad, and you expropriate some of the firms, multinationals, foreign multinationals in your country, there's going to be retaliation. Um, by the way, you can do that in hidden ways. In World War I, the U.S. Uh, expropriated all the German chemicals. In World War I, the U.S. expropriated uh, some of the British pub, uh, companies as well, uh, because we wanted to control what was said in their uh, popular communication operations. <clears throat> it wasn't until 19... 76 when we said, passed a rule that said that the uh, president cannot seize title to foreign businesses by just making some claim. And they, they, but they could seize, they could still seize it, but not title. 
And if some of you are lawyers, there's a big difference between being able to just seize and seize and get title. It's much, it tends to go back if, it's, uh, if, the, if you don't have title. Um, and that's when uh, foreign direct investment started in the, into the U.S. You know, we have some Brazilian steel mills, Indian steel mills. We have the big cement producer is CMEX, a Mexican operation. Some of you people may be beer drinkers. I see some young people. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, I used to drink beer too. Uh, um, so, and there's lots of other multinationals and more and more of that. By the way, the U.S. has set up multinationals in uh, Mexico. Walmart is the biggest retailer there. Well, here's what you see happening. That 67 is the Western European level. It's um, <clears throat> 67%. And there's a lot of people in the 200 million people in these countries. China is catching up, but still has a long way to go. 1.3 billion. Malaysia and Thailand have narrowed the gap, but the gap is still big. 24%, that's about the same as Mexico and maybe a slightly lower than Brazil and Colombia. Rest of Asia is not catching up or falling behind. This is a little bit out of date. It only goes through 2001. There's some country called India who've been growing rapidly. And somebody tonight educated me a bit that, they may be, that their growth last year was quite healthy. Um, that they're much, that's a large, diverse country, and there's a lot of uh, integration between its member states. Um, same way as there's a lot of integration between the member states of the United States uh, and of the European Union. Empirically, catching up occurs when the economy becomes economically integrated with industrial leaders. Um, and I'm not talking about when some oil producer in northern Africa, Libya, Algeria, ships oil to, they don't do well. Tunisia, I've gone over there in about a week. They have the higher income and and I'm betting on them because they're, they don't have the oil. They're shipping industrial goods to Europe and to Sicily and Italy particularly, and Spain, uh, and importing. And property rights of foreign multinationals, I'm going to find out how protected they are over there. I'm not sure in the Tunisia case. By the way, with more integrated, higher relative income, less integrated, lower relative income, there is a neat example, Spain. This is GDP per capita relative to the U.S. Before 1930s, they were moderately integrated with Western Europe and, um, in particular. 
and their level of income was about 42 percent, and Western Europe was 53 percent of the U.S. So they're about 80 percent of Western Europe. They had a civil war in the 30s. Franco came to power, and they stopped trading with uh, Western Europe, stopped trading with Spain. And Spain's economy suffered. In 1954, they started trading with them. Why? The Russians. We wanted to build bomber, uh, the, the Air Force, uh, air, airports for the bombers. Um, and they agreed to let that in if they were permitted to trade with uh, Western Europe. And there was a period of very rapid growth and catch-up that occurred. And they recovered back to their level that they were almost. Actually had by when they became an EU member in uh, 81. Since then, by the way, they've increased a lot. They've been a great growth success in recent years until the most recent one, when their real estate collapse was bigger <laughs> than Arizona's. Um, back in 2000, they had no immigrants. Now they have a large number of foreign-born. We had maybe 13% of our population. They, may, they, they went from about 2% up to 10. You go to Ecuadorian uh, communities, they speak Spanish. Now, leading industrial state, at least one, I just picked an arbitrary definition, at least one half the leader's GDP per capita. I looked at the history and, and saw that countries join the set, stay in the set. <clears throat> So it's an expanding or absorbing set. By the way, I'm not including countries that get rich temporarily because of natural resources. Living standards in these countries, in these industrial states, grow at 2% a year, or 1.8. The set of this is expanding, as I said. 1950, there's 14 of them, and they're Western European and some offshoots, like US, Australia, Canada and New Zealand. A few joined in the 50s. Germany recovered from the, and Austria recovered from the war, and Finland and Italy. There was additions in the 60s. There was additions in the 70s, a couple from Asia. Um, addition in the 80s. Additions in the 90s. Additions in the, so far this decade. These are neat. EU members. Uh, Italy's very scared because they, Greece is about ready to overtake them. And that would be a great embarrassment for Berlusconi the, uh, and the uh, Italians. In, in northern Italy, by the way, they're pretty rich, but not in other parts of the countries. Okay, um, I'll skip that. Um, what about China? Let's, they've been growing at about 9% a year. Um, and population has been growing very little. They have something called a one-baby policy, one little tyrant kid that totally manipulates the uh, parents. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, so if they do this 2%, 7%, that means they're going 5% above trend. 
In 14 years, they doubled their relative, uh, let's see, 5 into 70, 14. 14 years, they doubled the rel from 22.5 to 45% of the U.S. In a few extra years, get them up to that, this level. Um, should we, we be worried about China joining? I think not. Uh, more rich countries developing great technologies is better. China was the uh, technology leader in the, you look at all, you have to read this book by Needham uh, about all the, a lot of the major technological innovations occurred in China before they occurred at the other end of the uh, Euro-Asia landmass in Western Europe. Western Europe was a little bit faster in adopting these. They had the gravity clocks at about a little bit earlier in China, but 50 years after in Western Europe, every church steeple in the Western Europe had a gravity clock. You know, that really facilitates coordination. You can ring the bells and know when to be there to work and et cetera. Um, in terms of the printing press, that may have been in Korea developed, but uh, they just printed a few books for the uh, the royal, uh, for the emperors, uh, for the emperors. In Western Europe, they produce more books in a very short time than had been produced in the history of mankind. Um, and the price of books came way down. Now, why does this integration lead to catch-up? I have three reasons. Have access to foreign know-how, technology capital. I bet you if you go to Bill Carey's operation, there's a lot of expertise residing in that organization, within the people. Um, you don't put it together an operation like that overnight. And I bet you there's a lot of expertise residing in this organization called Colorado College, or otherwise it wouldn't be so successful. Um, you go abroad and there's IBM doing the consulting in every country in the world. Microsoft, uh, but U.S. is big in fast foods. Get your Starbucks around the world. Uh, Sweden, the McDonald's. They, um, and you can set up these operations at as many places you, as you want, subject to there's a limited number of locations. Um, that was a key advance that Ellen and I did, figuring out a way to introduce locations into standard economics, macroeconomics. A second reason is that um, with integration, barriers to adopting better technologies are lower. I'll explain more about that, why that's the case. More rapid diffusion of knowledge, which is useful in production. You know, we, you learn from others uh, that you interact with. Technology capital reason first. Multinationals use their technology know-how in their foreign subsidiaries. This increases productivity and output in these countries. Um, by the way, Walmart has multiple locations in this country as well. 
You go to a given metropolitan area and you see the same set of retailers. And I guess Trader Joe's is coming in big now. Old people like that, like me. Um, many multinationals have operation in the U.S. and China. When I'm over in China, I tell them they should get their multinationals abroad so that they can sustain that, uh, the openness. And that will guarantee their ac access to it, the foreign technology. When GM, well, I guess they're not doing so well recently, uh, though I know some guy has a Cadillac. I drove in one tonight. It's a nice car. Um, people in uh, when they set up their plants there, most of the value added is payment to the Chinese workers, and they locally finance most of this. The money comes from the Chinese people, goes to Hong Kong, and comes back through the Hong Kong banks that are located there. It's, uh, I've heard. Um, I've heard they're probably a little going to be a little bit slow in letting their currency fluctuate. A lot of the Chinese leaders <laughs> have a lot of money abroad and would suffer a capital loss if there was an appreciation in the uh, RMB. Uh, but I don't know if that's any truth in that uh, conjecture that I've heard. But these multinationals are key. According to the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis, BEA, they report a 9.5% return on U.S. foreign direct investment abroad. Um, and only in foreign, and only a 3.2% return on foreign direct investment in the U.S. There's got to be something fishy about those numbers. There is. The U.S. has a lot of there's two reasons. The U.S. has a lot of technology capital, and there are implicit rents on this that gets loaded in with the profit and inflates this. People in this country and Microsoft spend a huge amount of investment. SAS, SAS, uh, is a so the largest privately held software operation. I gave a talk at their operation once. 25% of their gross revenue is invested in R&D. That's a lot. Um, now they're setting up campuses in, uh, they're big campuses in North Carolina, but they're setting up a big one over in India now. But 35% of their total accounting profits, accounting, I use that word, come from their foreign subsidiaries, but only about 10% of their measured investment. As I said, the rents on technology capital is part of it. Another factor is that when you set up operations abroad, you have to make big investments to build that advertising, setting up suppliers. When Walmart went into Mexico, they faced a lot of opposition. Labeling laws, uh, even though they had local suppliers, they said, you're not fulfilling, the, and that the labeling requirements. These same local suppliers would sell the same stuff to Mexican businesses, and we're not subject to that rule. Um, over time, Walmart got a bunch of employees, 
a powerful pressure group. They got a lot of local suppliers, a powerful pressure group. And lo and behold, they changed the, the rules. They're even going to be let set up banks in their operations. They don't let them do this in the uh, U.S. Now let's turn to the lower barriers reason. Steve Prenti and I had this view that uh, everybody was saying, just invest a lot and you'll grow fast. It, I didn't see that much difference in investments across country or differences in, uh, they're called capital output ratios. And I wonder, so that didn't seem to be savings rates since didn't seem to be the driving factor. But there's huge differences in the efficiency with which resources are used. Technology know-how is the lever to riches. But this lever does not make a country rich if it is not used. Often better work practices are not used because of barriers to their use. And it can be done quite subtly. Who are the most un Gregory Clark, in his paper, Why Isn't the Whole World Rich, looked at textiles in the early 1900s. New England, with the young ladies in the uh, textile mills, were seven times as productive as the experienced males in India. It was the same equipment. You didn't need to have, be educated. It's just manual dexterity. Factor seven was pretty big. Uh, and it was all because of the work rules, work practices. Um, groups with a vested interest in maintaining current practices will use the political and regulatory process to block change. With economic integration, this is not a problem. If productivity and enhancing change is instituted and you have foreign markets, output increases by more than does productivity. Therefore, your employment has to increase. And people love it when employment goes up. No resistance. Further, if foreign company competition is blocked, foreign countries will retaliate and domestic exporters hurt. If we block somebody, it's, there's always a very judicious selection of goods to maximize the political howling, like the, like the coyotes we have down in uh, Arizona, uh, by the, these producers in the U.S. They even have this between states like New Hampshire and uh, Massachusetts. Uh, but that's another story that... These exporters have a vested interest in their country remaining open. You need to sustain a good system, you need vested interest in maintaining that good system. And in design, this is an area which economics is just at a very embryonic stage in terms of modeling. Hopefully, oh, when I was over talking to the people at Samsung, that's a big company. They produce 17% of Korea's output. 17%. Um, and I talked to the people, and they said, oh, yeah, we have operations in Helsinki and in Austin, Texas. Why? 
well, the guy told me, well, <laughs> it was obvious in order to get knowledge from Naoki and Helsinki, and there's, and the University of, well, there's some people in this uh, electronics down in the uh, Texas, Austin area. There's a flow of knowledge between people, and some people move between firms, et cetera. Well, don't have quite enough time to discuss it, though there's a lot to discuss there. By the way, some rent-seeking activity is productive. For example, it's becoming more protective by acquiring an education at Colorado College or an MBA at W.P. Carey School. Michael Crow was in the audience when I gave this the first time. <laughs> uh, and I think there's a lot of truth in this, and, and this is a Carey lecture. But some is unproductive, where you spend all your time and effort lobbying and paying and bribes for regulation in order to get monopoly rents that are protected by the regulatory system. By the way, some people getting rents are politicians. Berlusconi in Italy, billionaires, Shinawatara in Thailand, uh, he got kicked out by the, I met him uh, in that visit in uh, 2005. And it also was monopoly in the telecommunication. And by that, Carlos Slim, I think, must be paying off big bucks to the Mexican government to maintain his monopoly in uh, communications. What about differences in factor endowments? You know what? Here's one where all economists agree. I and Paul Krugman agree on this one. Um, they're small. <laughs> Just if some country has a lot of unskilled labor, and the U.S. has an abundance of skilled labor, you may say, have the U.S. produce the products that are intensive and skilled, and have them produce the products that are intensive in unskilled labor in trade. There are gains from such trade, but it's not a very big number when people quantify it. Free traders want to get that number way up there. It turns out to be small. Those that want to get uh, anti-free traders, uh, well, they come up with the same number. Uh, there's remarkable agreement there. Anytime you go to any conference with uh, people presenting scientific papers, they all agree, independent of their political biases. Competitive re reasons. Competition leads to greater productivity. A dramatic example is what happened in northern Minnesota in the Iron Range. In 1982, Reagan permitted competition from the new Brazilian mines. Minnesota mines productivity doubled with no new investment. Reason, it's been well documented by James Schmidt, work rule change. They cut the employment of skilled machinists in half. The product of these people was zero. They were contributing nothing to output. They did go down to the Twin Cities, and they got paid higher wages than they were receiving up in the Iron Range. And there they were contributing a lot to expanding the size of output and increasing income. Um, that added to productivity. Well, 
These are some examples from uh, Europe. By the way, states without groups that will be adversely affected by the introduction of some technology and with groups that will benefit want the better, better technology adopted there. States and regions, I would add. Toyota in 1985 located an automobile plant in Kentucky, hillbilly land, it, introducing just-in-time production into the United States. Kentuckians wanted high-paying jobs. Kentucky, Kentuckians wanted the building projects. Kentuckians wanted them there. Actually, they gave some subsidies um, or agreed to tax them less heavily. Um, the same thing happened in Wales. Uh, they kept all the Japanese cars out of the EU. There was free trade, no tariffs, but they had one port where you could bring them in, Marseilles. They had one inspector, and that inspector could inspect one car a day. There's one country that was not in the EU, Norway. Half their cars were from uh, Japan. That suggests, well, they got around this by setting up their factories in Wales. Um, by the way, Toyota set up the factories of the more, not the small cars, but the higher quality cars in the mid-90s in the U.S. when the voluntary quotas were coming back. Well, I, I mentioned this hostage. What about China's economic future? This is to conclude. If current trends continue, and I think, I don't confidently predict they will, but I predict they will, China will produce more technology capital and have more of its multinationals with operations as abroad. China will become more integrated with the most advanced industrial countries, and in time become one. By the way, I hope India does the same thing, uh, because India has 1.1 billion people. But those two countries together, you've got about 40% of the world population. Well, the danger is that China will become centralized and closed. However, the pro there's a lot of autonomy of the provinces. One of the provinces down by the Thai border signed a free trade agreement with Thailand, a province doing that. Can, that's like Alaska signing a free trade agreement with uh, Canada. <laughs> um, the danger is that China becomes centralized and closed. They were once the richest, beginning in the Song Dynasty in about 1980, they doubled their living standards and doubled their population. That's a factor of four. They were way ahead. Then the innovations went like mad. Huh? Then they had the Mongols come in that would mess things up a bit. But then the Ming Dynasty came in and closed them off to the rest of the world. And technological regression set in. They started using wood plows again rather than iron plows. The emperor did not want them to have iron. They'd make guns. Uh, it might overthrow them. They said, you're not allowed to make big boats. They used to have these huge teakwood fleets that would, went all with 10, 10 or 20,000 people on that would, fly, would float from uh, China to the east coast of Africa, which is a long ways. They did a lot of foreign trade. But the emperor was worried about the... Uh, 
the admiral's doing some, causing some trouble. So he said no ships with more than two masts. So that re effectively restricted to inland waterways. He also, they hadn't organized something called a censorate, like it's sort of, they criticized the government, a group within the government. He eliminated them. They, um, in China, stagnated. Um, well, but when I was over there in 2005 talking to Wen Jiabo, the prime minister, I was appointed the spokesperson for the set of Nobel Prize winners because that's the most recent. And I had sort of carefully drafted some comments and I emphasized the importance of being open. And what he said, we're going to be open <laughs> in, in, in his response. Uh, uh, I guess we also agreed that all this uh, big hello baloo about their currency being pegged uh, is probably much to be, much to do about, not very much. But the openness is big time. Thank you. That completes my talk today. And thank you for your attention. Questions for Professor Prescott?